Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. For tuning in to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is David French. He is a senior editor for The Dispatch and was formerly a senior writer for National Review. David's a New York Times bestselling author, and his next book, The Great American Divorce, will be published by St. Martin's Press later this year. He's a grad from Harvard Law School, and after he got out of Harvard Law School, he volunteered to go to Iraq. In 2007, he deployed there, serving in Diyala province as a squadron judge advocate for the 2nd Squadron, 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment where he was awarded the Bronze Star. He lives and works in Franklin, Tennessee with his wife, Nancy, and their three children. He is one of the best guests that's ever been on the show, and this is one of the best conversations I've ever had on the podcast. Uh, it's long, but it's worth buckling your seatbelt and listening to for the long haul. I give you David French. David, welcome back to the podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me back. I appreciate it. So two guests I've had, repeat guests, both conservatives, have both been on Bill Maher. You are <laughs> one of them. And can you guess okay. who the other one is? Uh, oh, gosh. There's been quite a few. Um, not a Trump fan. Not a Trump fan. Been on Bill Maher. Uh, my colleague, Jonah Goldberg. No, I'm trying, to get Jonah, I'm trying to get Jonah on, but... One more guess. Uh, he is a fan of expertise. Oh, Tom Nichols. Tom Nichols. Yeah, you and yes. Tom. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I've picked up on the Twitterverse that you are actually playing a lot of World of Warcraft. Oh, uh, well, of course. Now, the, the, the problem is, so I've played since launch, and I believe 05. And then, gosh, when was it? Like twenty, late twenty sixteen, early twenty seventeen. I uh, I had to stop playing just because I was so ridiculously busy, and I just kind of left it. And it created a hole in my heart, man. Uh, you know, when you've been playing a game for a dozen years, you know, I missed my guild. Uh, and then during the um, you have the a shutdown, guild. What is your guild? Of course, I have a guild. Are you kidding me? Uh, the name of the guild is My Precious. Um, oh my gosh. So you're like looking for the ring. Yeah, exactly. Cause we're, you know, looking for the loot. Right. And, um, uh, and do they been... know this, this is what's interesting. So you have a guild, right? Yes. And it's, it's with, you know, some of them might be 13 year old or are they all like journalists or something? Do you, no. do you these people know? So basically do they know that they're playing with a guy who's been on Bill Maher and is a, a meet the press and a big political figure and a never Trumper. And do they know that like they're looking for the loot with a guy that's like, like got a life and. <laughs> so I joined this guild in 2008. Okay. And so that was right after I got back from Iraq. So Obama won. You're like, oh my God, what am I going to do? <laughs> yeah. Well, I changed guilds. Like my, my first guild, love those guys. They're awesome guys. But, you know, we weren't raiding. I wanted to raid. I mean, we're really getting to the nerdery here. So I changed to a raiding So by guild. raiding people, just for listeners that know this, it's, it's kind of the Viking thing. Like 
you're not going off to these quests like, oh my God, there's a princess and she's lost her ring and you need to fight this. <laughs> you're just kind of going and pillaging. Like you're going. Well, what in it is is there the the game creates these elaborate encounters with a series of bosses, and so raiding is taking on those bosses like in sequence. So you're going through a dungeon, or maybe you're going through an outdoor space, or maybe you're going through caves, whatever, but. It's, there's a series of boss fights, and that's what raiding is. And they're very intricate, and it requires a lot of coordination and control. So you have to have a raid leader. You have class leaders like who lead all the healers, who lead all the damage dealers. And it's sort of like a, a little virtual platoon. And so when you do this— And because you, actually, you volunteered to go to Iraq, and you're like, well, there wasn't enough of that, so i got to go back. <laughs> <laughs> I was a yeah. Harvard Law degree guy who volunteered to go to Iraq, and you know what? I didn't have enough. I need to trigger my PTSD, and I'm going to go with, with, with guild leaders. Yeah, <laughs> and, well, you know, and the crazy thing is, so then you, you are connected with all these people around the country. So, um, you know, my guild—my raid leader was a forklift operator in California— um, my, uh, like one of our lead damage dealers was a pot grower in Montana. Another one of the guys who was a lead guy in the raid was a cop in North Carolina. So we had a pot farmer and a cop in the guild. Like, it's just all these people, you know, community did college you ever, students. Did you ever get mail to like a, Hey, if you get pulled over, uh, you, you know, I, I mean, I'm in Sergeant Thompson's guild from, you know, <laughs> well, Wisconsin. I'd have to be in like rural North Carolina for that right. to happen. But, but, uh, so yeah, so I joined them in 08 and then sort of like you, you have all these hours. So you tell about your lives and what you do. And so they've sort of been with me every step of the way as I've gotten more into journalism and, and, you know, done more things. So they'll watch me on TV or they'll see me on the Today Show or whatever. And we all know each other, who we each are in real life. But yeah, it's like no big deal. You know, we're, we just are who we are. And, and the main thing is, do we get the bosses down? Not how many Twitter followers we have. It's, but, but yeah, I mean, every now and then I'll like one of them will call and they'll say, uh, hey, I got a legal issue, you know, or can you help me out with this or that? And I'm sure, absolutely. So, it's a crazy, it's crazy, but you build real relationships. And one of my sad things is as I stopped raiding in 2017, um, I lost touch with a lot of these guys and we're just kind of getting back in touch again as I'm getting, jumping back in the game. So basically what you're saying is never stop raiding. I mean, that's never stop, never I mean, stop you, raiding. Not only do you miss the loot, uh, you know, and not only do you miss each new armor set and weapon that you can get, but you also more importantly end up missing out on the relationships with people that you've spent a lot of time with over the last several years. I mean, um, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. It sounds if you, if, Young people who are younger than me can totally identify with this because they've probably met people in all kinds of games over the course of their lives. People my age and older, they're just like, "What? What are you talking about?" But we had um, one of my first, my very first guild. The uh, uh, one of the 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 women in the guild, she owned a quilt shop and she made quilts. And in her spare time, she raided WoW. <laughs> and so there we go. When I came back from Iraq, she had custom made quilts for me and for my kids. I mean, crazy, but yeah, it's just regular folks doing all from all every socioeconomic walk of life, every conceivable sort of, um, you know, uh, profession and united by the desire to slay dragons.
I love it. I love it. And, <laughs> and before we get into it, like, I'm not going to say weightier matters. I'm just going to say different matters. What class did you play? Like what? Like what? Like were so you in, like in, in WoW Classic? I'm I play a priest in both classic and retail. So in classic, I'm a um, I am a uh, human priest in retail. I'm a blood elf priest. So I'm horde in retail, and I'm alliance in classic. In classic. So you're truly bipartisan. I mean, you, you're oh. you know. The whole thing. Absolutely. I mean, the spirit of unity and reconciliation just pervades. And as somebody asked me, I was talking about this on uh, on uh, on Twitter about my renewed zeal for World of Warcraft. And somebody said, uh, asked me what class I played, and I said a priest, usually holy priest. And they're like, "That's a little on the nose." <laughs> no, it's a, it's a Protestant revolt. It's kind of like actually, you know, it's so it, non. It's so yeah. It's a. You're deep anti, you know, it's, it, you're keeping the Protestant Reformation going. <laughs> but I, I alternate between holy and shadow priest, so, you know. I have one character, and I'm thinking about relogging on, because I'm, you know, like everyone, I'm like, you know, going stir-crazy. And I have a hunter elf, I think I was 67 level, which back then was a big deal. Now that 67, you're like, you're, you're an E3. I mean, like, it's yeah. nothing. But nobody's you know, I, 67 anymore. You can, you can get a boost to 110. I'm level 120 and just hit 120. So max. I like, your, I like your demeaning encouragement. Well, you can get a boost to 110. I mean, I'm 120. It's going to be awful, but you know, yeah. we, we could get you in at 110. I mean, yeah. so, so this is like, so we're living in the age of Corona. And I think this is going to be, uh, something that's going to be with us for a while. And I wonder as a guy that's been a kind of never Trumper, but somebody who's praised Trump when he's right and critiqued him when he's wrong. Do you think, I mean, do you worry about like the fragile nature of democracy? Cause I think like it, it and this is coming from a Democrat. I'm saying like all the governors that are doing the most autocratic things, their approval ratings are through the roof. And you look at the Florida governor, uh, DeSantis, who has been a little more like, okay, let's do this more locally. His ratings have gone down. And I just wonder, like, is this uh, a bad sign for civil liberties? Like, are we kind of... Mm. So I'm a civil libertarian, so I would be more prone to alarmism than most people. Um, on this issue, but I'm not alarmed yet. And, and let me tell you why. So as you were talking, I turned, uh, I, I went to my, the current coronavirus tracker that I follow most because it's most quickly and relic and regularly updated. And it is listing as of today. I mean, today alone, as of when we're recording this mid afternoon, Eastern time, 1,558 deaths today from an infectious, highly infectious disease. Yesterday, there were 2,407 deaths. That was our play, peak, right? Like, that was our high? So far. So far, yes. And so, 9-11 was 29... Right. 100, like 29-19 or something. Like. So put that in perspective. What that means is, is a highly contagious infectious disease is the number one has been the number one cause of death in the whole United States of America for about a week now. So um, your heart disease and cancer, which kill hundreds of thousands of Americans a year, 
There are around 1,700 deaths a day total, uh, each one of them in the whole U.S. And um, coronavirus has been more. And, and, and it's gone from zero to this in about four weeks, uh, or functionally, statistically, basically zero to this in about four weeks. And so this is unprecedented in our lifetimes. We have not seen something like this. Um, you have to be more than 100 years old to have seen something like this. In the, well, yeah, like Spanish flu or like... Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, hopefully, you know, we're not going to hit Spanish flu death totals, but... But coronavirus is the deadliest thing in the United States of America right now. More than car accidents, more than flu and flu complications, more than heart disease, more than cancer. And it has been for several days. So I am a constitutional originalist, which means I, I spend a lot of time sort of studying constitutional history, intent of the founders, etc. And our country was built in a particular way, which grants the governors, something called the police power. Okay. So the federal government is a government of enumerated powers. It only has the power that the constitution gives it. State governors, by contrast, sort of exercise background sovereign powers, except when limited by state constitutions and by the federal government and federal constitution. Um, which means in 1824 case of Gibbons v. Ogden, the Supreme Court said this means, and this was just, this wasn't breaking ground. This was just like the sky's blue and water is wet, that state governors have power of quarantine and to pass health laws of every description. Um, dealing with pandemics... Wait, do, when, it, when they, do they have, like, I don't know, like, the background of that. Did they quarantine people back then? I mean, like, were there... Quarantine I, it, is a practice that goes back to the Black Death. I mean, right, I mean okay, okay, yeah. Yeah, so, so you know, we're talking about... Um, pandemics and and the threat of infectious diseases, that used to be the way you died, <laughs> you know, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, and so l- let me put it this way at a, when a pandemic is on the upswing and at its apex, hopefully we're at our apex. I don't, I, God help us if it gets worse, but when a pandemic is on the upswing and at its apex, a state governor is at the apex of his or her power. And much this way that a, a president is at the apex of his power during a time of declared war. Now, that doesn't mean it's unlimited, but what it means is their ability to exert authority on for the sake of public health is at its apex. Now, I will worry if they do not start to loosen that grip as the pandemic starts to, again, God willing, fade. So right now what we are seeing is the system functioning exactly the way it was designed to function. And I think that's really important for people to realize. Now, that doesn't mean every single edict from a governor is proper. I mean, there was a federal judge in Kentucky who properly struck down a mayor's order that a church could not conduct a drive-up service where people didn't get out of their cars. Like, that was too far. It was properly struck down. That doesn't mean that I'm going to defend Gretchen Whitmer saying you can't go to Walmart and buy seed for your garden. Like, so that doesn't mean every single one of these restrictions is appropriate. But when you're talking about these governors ordering shelter in place, ordering closure of all large gatherings, you're seeing governors function the way the system was designed for it to function in exactly this circumstance. So yeah, when it's it stops interesting functioning too. like that, I'll get more nervous. 
you you see these governors actually like collaborating and working together, and yet bipart in bipartisan fashions. I mean, it's. I think what happens in American culture is because of our media culture, the presidency seems like everything. And it's interesting. A friend from my church said, well, we should blame everything on Congress because they can overturn anything with a two-thirds majority so they could run the country if they wanted to. So you're getting to this point where like people are seemingly getting a civics lesson. I mean, God-awful. I mean, it should not come through a pandemic. That's awful. But like... People are learning about the civic architecture of the country in times we don't normally think about. Like, Yeah, I mean, and I hope they're getting a civics lesson. I think it's more of a partisan lesson. So, you know, what will often happen is if Trump says, I'm going to fix this, then people say, oh, you can't do that. It's for the states. And then when Trump says, I'm going to leave it to the states, people say, well, look at Trump. He's abdicating his authority. The, the bottom line is, I think the best way to look at it is this. To deal with the pandemic, the governors and the mayors have the actual power to order you to stay home or not, to ban your gathering or to not ban your gathering, to order your business closed, to not order it closed. That's where that, that's their power. The federal government can issue guidelines and suggestions, but it's more importantly a logistician. It's a, re, a source of resources. No one has the financial power of the federal government. So, for example, a lot of states, I mean, they just can't lapse into deficit spending whenever they want, right? So they have legal and state constitutional bars on just like pumping money into their economies. Well, the federal government prints money. I mean, the federal government has the power, has financial power that dwarfs that of any state so and basically like for people that don't think about this stuff every day like you know like you do when you're not playing world of warcraft like, people don't <laughs> get like, times like, when i'm not that basically we can kind of print as much money as people will believe in right and so like people borrowing against the I mean, people buying bill bonds against our like basically like we can print money until we can't I mean, so like the federal government like has this kind of thing. Well, okay, if we still believe in the dollar, I mean, it it, it might be a problem, and 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 debts are probably not great. It'd be better if we had lower debt and and lower deficits. But like in emergencies, we can do this because if people still believe in the dollar, which which Utah or California or Rhode Island can't do because there's not like. Rhode Island bucks and, you know, we're going to print a bunch of Rhode Island bucks. And- <laughs> right. I mean, I'm not going to get into monetary policy. I'm not an e- economist, um, but it is. But you play this- one in World of Warcraft. I mean, just- <laughs> yeah, my class, the economist class. We assume our weapons. Um, the <laughs> <laughs> the uh, So I'm not an economist. So if don't listen to anything I say about, say, this debt level is beyond what we can tolerate or that debt level. Sure, I mean, sure, you're gonna, sure. There's a lot more. But suffice it, you don't have to be an economist to know that the financial power of the United States of America, uh, which includes not just the money it directly raises, but its ability to borrow, its ability to print money, its ability to lend. I mean, all of these things dwarfs, dwarfs that of any state. And so... You know, there isn't a state in the union that can say, here's a trillion dollars. 
that we're just going to pump in to our, you know, pump into our citizenry, our businesses, our economy. I mean, even California, uh, incredibly powerful, doesn't have the financial resources of the, anywhere close to the federal government for a, a million different reasons. And so the federal government literally becomes like the supply line for uh, to greater or lesser degrees to these states. And these states exercise like actual legal coercive authority, uh, whereas the federal government is sort of more financial and resource ability. Uh, in this circumstance, in, I'm not saying like in general, but in this circumstance. And so now that's not to say that we're not going to pay a high price for the six trillion or so that may prove necessary to deal with this, that that deficit spending might have might have some real consequences for us down the line. Um, it's not a proof that, oh, well, we can just spend trillions on anything we want to at any time. Um but it is absolutely the case that the federal government just has an enormous amount of financial power that any given state or collection of states doesn't have. Do you think like if we had just left things where like Bill Clinton had left them with a surplus? I mean, and, and some of that was the Bush Clinton and there was nine eleven. But like if we could have just adjusted, we probably financially – and maybe it's the blessings of divided government, right? Like you, you, you kind of, that was a time. It's, it's fascinating to me at one point in historical memory, we had surpluses. <laughs> yeah, I know you, you know, you tell that to people who are, uh, you know, like younger than 25 or whatever. And, and they they look at you like you're a Martian. What surpluses? Um, you know, look, I, my own view is that, the more financially healthy a nation is going into a crisis, the better it's going to be able to come yeah, yeah. through the crisis. Um, and, you know, for all of the talk, Trump's talk of the world's greatest economy and all of, you know, the greatest economy in the history of the U.S., false, false, false. I mean, it's solid. It was good. But um, we were running a trillion dollar deficit on top of multi-trillion dollar debt. And so that what that means is if you're going to pile on trillions more in debt, on top, when we didn't necessarily have as much cushion as you would hope to have, again, there's that increases the chance of ne- negative repercussions down the line. And and so, you know, but you will also have people who are very, very smart who will come on this podcast and say, oh, Mr. French doesn't know what he's talking about. What this is demonstrating is that, in fact, in previous crises, we've left a lot of money on the table that we could have spent to get us out of it maybe quicker. So I'll give you a good example. Um, we've, there, after Obama became president, he comes into president in 09, the, the economy is in the toilet in 09. It's the Great Recession. And there's a huge fight over what, about $800 billion in stimulus? Um, Congress just flew through a debate over $2 trillion in stimulus, $2 trillion, and just, boom, pumped it into the economy, and parts of it are already running out of money. Um, the, the SBA program designed to help businesses meet payroll is, I saw a report this, that said it's going to run out of money this afternoon, and I will bet you that Congress will refund that, will reauthorize funding for that to maybe a tune of another $300, $500 billion. And so, uh, there are people who are going to, we're going to have a huge food fight when this is over. Just mark my words. I'm, 
again, I'm not an economist, but I know politics pretty well. We're going to have a huge food fight when this is over, over whether this demonstrates the value of fiscal conservatism, which fiscal conservatism gives you more great, greater financial flexibility, or if this illustrates the value, uh, enduring value of deeper uh, of dipping deeper into the well of federal fiscal authority, even if it means greater deficit spending. So you're going to have a big food fight over that. Um, there's a lot of unanimity right now that in the immediate crisis, we need to spend. I agree with that. I totally agree with that. Um, but what that means, the food fight that we're going to have about what that means for economic policy after this crisis eases is going to be very interesting. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because you have this period under you know, kind of George H.W. Bush and Clinton where you, you know, H.W. Bush gets kind of run out of office because he raised some taxes. Clinton, like, I mean, these guys seem like pretty moderate centrist guys. And we get in this, in this equilibrium where you're getting surpluses and like that, like, wow, if we had done that and embrace like that as public policy, like, why don't we, who, why doesn't anybody run on we should have surpluses <laughs> so that when there's emergencies, you know, uh, we can spend. And then when we don't have emergencies and we can probably still fund a welfare state. I mean, like we can probably still do most of the things that most Americans have come to expect so, with the federal government. Like, but we could just run surplus. We could run surpluses think, and probably do it. Well, we could, but we could not do it painlessly to important constituencies. Um, I mean, we by have the way, a- Malcolm Gladwell on a podcast somewhere said like about Canadian healthcare, and he was commenting how he's like, "Well, you all just didn't do what we did. Like, we had a a, a thing in Saskatchewan, and it was a, a thing. And we, you know, if you, don't, you whether you, or not you like the Canadian healthcare system, we had an adult conversation about what we would wait in line for and what we wouldn't, and and, and there was a broad consensus and. You know, it's no system is perfect, but they he was kind of saying they had a broad consensus conversation around what we would do and what we wouldn't do. And, and I feel like Americans are just terrible at that. Well, I mean, we want it all. We want it all. And we want no and, taxes and high and high and, and so let's, let's just take let's just take the three three big things. We want a big social safety net for America's seniors and a adequate social safety net for the you know America's poorest citizens. We also want international peace and security, uh, and we also want reasonably low tax burdens. I mean, I could say pick two, pick two of the three. Um, you know, one of the and also you could say if we, if if we want a superhero, we're going to have to go DC because we need Superman for that. There's not a Marvel. Yeah. There's not quite a Marvel superhero that could do that. But if we had Superman, because remember, you know, that during the Clinton. The Clinton surplus. We had a hu- We had the end of the Cold War, so we had a big time peace dividend uh, from our, the American. Mil- you know, American military shrank pretty dramatically after the de- after Desert Storm. Um, no real international rivals. This was before nine eleven, so we didn't have international military commitments, uh, active combat operations overseas, uh, other than air campaigns that were relatively short in duration, and. So we had we had this little you know like ten year window of history that was just fundamentally different than it is now and so and you know times were really good I mean it's kind of ironic that that's when the Gen X slacker angry grunge era started like 
uh, you know, I'm older Gen X, so uh, I was old enough to kind of scoff at the, my Gen X, younger Gen X friends who are like, oh man, Cold War's over, economy's booming, the suburbs suck, you know, and you're just like, this is, you're living in a golden era, man, you're living in a golden era, who knows how long this will last, um, and it turns out it didn't last all that long, I mean, we had 9-11, then we have the Great Recession, um, and then since that time, we've had an aging population. Uh, we have, uh, you know, huge financial commitments to get out of the Great Recession. I mean, there and then and demands from the American people for a lavishly funded um, Medicare and Social Security program and lower taxes and defense obligations that span the globe. I mean, that formula does not yield anything but large deficits between from now until as far as the eye can see. Yeah, and this is, I mean, you know, I had a guy on the show uh, a couple of months ago who wrote a great book called Mortal Republic, and he was talking about the decline of the Roman Republic from like the end of the third century, you know, it, 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 you know, it, to 100 years after that. And he says, just a wink and a nod. He's like, it's... He's like republics don't last. It's like Franklin said. What kind of you know people ask Franklin, what kind of government did you get? A republic, republic if you can keep it. He was saying like it, it, you know the Roman Republic in its glory days, you you had a lot of great citizens. They didn't get paid. They just got esteem for being su- <laughs> supporting the republic. And then it, it, it the wink and the nod, the norm gone there. And then all of a sudden you have autocracies and corruption. I mean, is that like? Are we past the point? Like, do you think we can get the Republic back or? It, it, I mean, I think we're in a, I think we're in a bad place and getting worse. And, and you can put part and, of the And I'm a Democrat, on. by the way. I'm saying, I don't, I think everyone runs against autocracy. And so you get, somebody said about Obama, who I voted for twice. He talked like a comparative religion professor and often acted like a Blackwater executive. This is just the nature of the beast, right? I mean, you, you come into the office and you, you run against George W. Bush's excesses and you just – the industrial complex and this and everything else, it just overwhelms you. Like, I mean – Well, and so, okay, there's several – I mean, I think there's a, a million things happening at once, but here are a few of them. One, we – are your campaign? Your we have a huge problem with consistent overpromising and underdelivering. So, as we have put more and more and more and more uh, a focus on the president, uh, American citizens tend to put more and more responsibility on the president for the outcome of everything, of everything, even things when the president, frankly, can't control the outcome or has very limited control. So, you're increasingly having people running. You know, I remember when when Obama ran and there was the chanting grounds, Obama, Obama. I mean, just, you know, tens of thousands, arenas full of people, Obama, Obama. And Republicans were like, oh, look at all that cultish hero worship. You know, he's not, he doesn't have the power to do what he's promising. You know, and there people would fart around the YouTube clip of like, this is the moment when the oceans stopped their rise and, you know, this sort of real grandiose promising. And then fast forward eight years later, and you've got a guy going, make America great again. I alone can fix it. Chanting crowds in arenas. 
And so you've got this popular demand for somebody who can come in and fix it, who's going to change it. And then the person gets into office and, and a couple of things happen at once. One, suddenly, or maybe they don't actually realize that they just experience it. Uh, like, I don't think Trump has quite yet understood the separation of powers, but they get into office and they realize and experience, whoo, uh, not a lot of big stuff that I can do. I mean, Obama had two years of filibuster proof, uh, or no, less than two years, uh, uh, you know, about a year of filibuster proof majority and, and a House majority. He had two years of a majority in the House and the Senate, and he got a stimulus through and he got Obamacare through. After he lost the House in 2010, he couldn't do anything else. He couldn't do card check. He couldn't do gun control. He couldn't do uh, the Employment Non-Discrimination Act. He couldn't do and, carbon and even tax. Obamacare, right? That was through reconciliation. I mean, that was still like not, I mean, there were still backwater. I mean, it was not a clear. Well, the guts of it was passed with the filibuster proof majority. Yeah. There were some reconciliation elements. But so, so Obama found his power constrained. And then the other thing is, you know, you come in and you say, I'm going to change the course of the Middle East. But then, all, you know, look, then you start getting these classified intelligence reports about plots against the United States, and nobody wants the United States to get hit again. And so all of a sudden, it looks a lot more costly to, for example, pull out of Afghanistan or to stop drone attacks. And, and so, you know, there's what was the British politician? I can't remember his name, but he's something about somebody asked him about what happened to his policies. And he said, Events, dear boy, events. <laughs> and, and so a lot of presidents come in, especially in the foreign policy arena, arena with grandiose promises about how they're just going to change everything, and then suddenly realize, oh, now I see why things are the way they are. It's not the swamp, although there is such a thing as inertia. It's not that all these other people were idiots. No, 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 no. It's a system. And also, don't you think there should be a public service announcement before the debates when it, both parties, they do this, right? What are you going to do? I'm going to change the healthcare system. I'm going to change education. I'm going to eliminate all this. And they're acting like they run as prime minister with absolute authority. Like, And, and they're like, well, why do we care? Like, okay, like, okay, why doesn't everybody just get a unicorn that has a pet pony that out of their mouth completely you know, dispenses soft serve ice cream. Like we should, we should like, like, don't you think every moderator of every debate should say, no, but how do you get that through Congress? No, but how do you well, get that through Congress? But how do you, well, that, that was one of the best questions in the democratic debates. I don't know if you remember this, but Elizabeth Warren, remember had a plan for everything. Yeah. yeah oh yeah. 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 And Chuck Todd, I think this was the first democratic debate says, you say you have a plan for everything. Do you have a plan for dealing with Mitch McConnell? Uh, word salad. She had no plan for Mitch McConnell. If you don't have a plan for Mitch McConnell, your plans for everything, except to the extent that they deal with your pretty limited executive authority, who cares? Who cares? It's just sort of political virtue signaling. But here's the problem. The American electorate wants what it can't have and if you tell the American electorate it can't have it, you're generally not in a good place to get elected. Okay, so healthcare is a great example. I mean, and this is one more on the left side, on the left side of the spectrum. People say, I want universality, quality, and affordability. 
I want those three things together. I want universality. Everyone gets it. I want it to be at the top quality and it's, it has to be affordable. That's another one of those things. It's like pick two, you know? Yeah, yeah, pick yeah, you. yeah, yeah. I, here's something on the right side of the spectrum that's Trump, sort of Trumpy. I'm going to smash our enemies. I'm going to keep America safe from jihadist terrorism. And I'm going to get all the troops home. Hmm. Hmm. So you're going to keep America safe and you're going to defeat our enemies and you're going to pull everyone out of the Middle East. What's your plan, Stan? <laughs> How are you going to do that? How are you going to, over time, keep America safe? Yeah, you're and you served, a you've served in Iraq in some pretty intense situations. I mean, you were in the Jag Corps. Mm-hmm. You're walking through intense villages. I mean, you volunteered. You didn't have to volunteer. Like You were in some scary shit that I think most people would never, never, never do. If you had to pick two of those three, what would you pick? Well, I think I think that the bottom line is you cannot guarantee American safety at the same time that you allow terrorist safe havens to exist. Um, We can't. One thing that there's something that's very unpredictable about terrorism. What's unpredictable is on any given day, on which given day will will a terrorist attempt to strike? If we could figure that out, (laughs) we'd be golden. And so here's like, what terrorist, is terrorist, it's like the coronavirus or something, right? It's, it doesn't, it doesn't have to like, you can do all the right stuff and it can still get through. It, just, it doesn't, it just needs to get right. through There's someone no. not washing their hands. I mean, like you get a homegrown guy or mostly guys. I mean, sometimes it could be cows, but like mostly it's guys that, that can build a pipe bomb and all of a sudden you, you can't monitor everybody and, 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 right. and they get smarter with the internet and these kind of things. Right. But what is absolutely predictable is if terrorists have safe havens, they're far more dangerous and formidable. I mean, just that's 100 percent established. Because basically what you're saying is they can it's just plan, like, resource, it's just like, train. It's just like Paris Island, right? You do push-ups. You, you, you're a geeky guy that was playing World of Warcraft. Now you're doing push-ups. You're learning how to yeah. put a bomb. You, I, okay, you, you, and, then, and then we have tech specialists, and we have broadband, and we communicate with our guy. I mean, just – that the infrastructure, if you can kill the yeah. infrastructure, you can. Yeah, exactly. So a, a, a important terrorist strategy is no safe havens. Now that doesn't mean invade everywhere, but a no safe haven strategy also means you can't bring the troops all home. You just can't. And so if you're going to say, I'm going to end all the wars in the Middle East and bring all the troops home, what you're going to say by necessity is I'm going to allow terrorist safe havens to establish and exist. And we're going to have the consequences of that. And people won't level with the American people on this point. And so that's one thing that's frustrating to me. Time and time again, we take the American people has, they come to the political sphere and they say, I want all of this. I want all of the things. And the politician says, and what all of the things is compared to, it is different from each party. But then what the politician says, you can have that. That is what you can have. Now, I did notice in the Democratic primary, in fairness to the Democrats, that there was some actual pushback against that. I mean, the, uh, you can have all of the things candidates were Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar were the, no, you actually can't have all of those things. And, and they, 
and Biden, you know, Biden won an incredibly decisive victory. So there, there is perhaps some hope here that says, no, the, the you can have everything candidate, you know, that we can't. We By the way, can't. have you ever seen a guy like Buttigieg who never screwed up in a debate? I mean, I, I haven't seen a guy like this. I don't know. <laughs> the, the guy, like, I, I, it's Stepford Wives or something. He, the guy never screwed up with the debates. I'm like, wait, wait this guy's got to drop the ball at one point. Like, where, where you have, like, Kamala Harris, everybody thought, like, oh, my gosh, she's the best candidate. And she had a glass jaw at Tulsi Gabbard. Get, it's, it looks like she's reading a talking point. You know, ask her about medical like weed prosecutions, and, and she just fall. I mean, like Buttigieg was like a, a colossus. I mean, he's not going to be the nominee, you know, this year and maybe never. But like, wow! I mean, I never saw a guy that was like that focused. Well, I mean, and nobody should look at what happened here. I mean, yeah, he sought the Democratic nomination and didn't get it. So from that extent, he failed to accomplish what he wanted to do. But if you're going to say 37-year-old mayor of South Bend, I think he's 37, but 37-year-old mayor of South Bend, Indiana, is going to end up being, you know, arguably in the top three of the Democratic primary uh, at the start of this. I mean, people were wondering, what is this guy doing? And so it was a really interesting example of how kind of raw political talent, if given an opportunity, if given a, a, enough of a platform, can really shine. And you're right. I mean, I watched all the debates, and the guy was a, a communications machine. Like, his ability to give fully articulate answers uh, that didn't, in my view, didn't come across as just talking point, talking point, talking point, conclusion. No, he was an organic guy. I mean, he, he was good. Like Yeah, it came across as thoughtful. Uh, he, he considered the issue. He had a thoughtful answer. I didn't agree with them frequently. I think one of his... Uh, big accomplishments was sort of selling himself when I'm, as a moderate when I don't really think he's all that moderate. But, um, I, you know, he came across as a thoughtful, serious guy. And, and I think... Um, and on the moderate thing, I think the difference between he and Klobuchar, when they talked about pro-life stuff, they both got the pro-life Democrat question. And I thought Klobuchar was... A real moderate, right? She said, "Like, yeah, we have room for pro-life Democrats. Like, we we, we have a big party. Like, she really seemed like uh, someone that you could imagine in a mainline Protestant church that really struggled with abortion and doesn't think it's great. And 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 he kind of came across as a guy. I mean, this is you're right. I think his communication strategy it kind of betrayed the kind of." Uh, Hardcore, like there's, but a judge was probably a lot for left, more left than he put his cards down on. But he, like, he moderated not by substance but by tone. Oh, exactly. Whereas so Klobuchar, like, she actually said, "Yeah, you could be a pro-life Democrat and be in the party." Like, it's a, it, you yeah, know, which was a real difference. Yeah, we we have two kind. There are sort of two kinds of relevant moderation these days. One one kind is uh, political moderation. Are you? Sort of roughly in that American middle, are you center left or you center right? Klobuchar is center left, and then you have um, temperamental moder temperamental moderation. Are you a bomb thrower? Are you angry, or do you come across as incredibly reasonable and thoughtful? And so Buttigieg had some quite radical ideas that he expressed in a very reasonable way. <laughs> so 
For example, on the religious liberty front, he's to the left of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And, and, but the way he said it, he wasn't. And and by the way, for our listeners, that's not a compliment for you. No, 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 no. No, that's not. That's not an endorsement. That's not a good thing. Just like on Radio Land, that's not a good thing for David French. Yeah, right. And so, you know, a lot of people, because of the tonal issue, um, confuse me as a moderate. So, um, I'm yeah, conservative. Mallory, you've had some debates where I thought, uh, and I've had you on the, I, I, I've gotten to know you a little bit. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you're a true conservative. I mean, you, at Harvard Law, you run the pro-life group at Harvard and then go, you volunteer for Iraq. I mean, you have all the you know, check, 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 like, and because you're a nice guy and you're Christian. People are like, oh, he's a softie. He's a liberal. Oh, and because I don't like And because he has friends that are Democrats. Mm -hmm. Right, because I have friends who are Democrats and also because I'm opposed to Trump. Um, But, you know, but I will say this. I think that I think the political spectrum, our left-right spectrum is getting less relevant than liberal-illiberal. Okay. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. I think that's because you have the the populist on the left, populist on the right, right? Like, yeah, these are the illiberals. So, and so, I feel more kinship with a small l liberal that is on the left than I do with an authoritarian that's on the right. So, you know, I had this big intra-conservative debate last summer. Um, I had this big intra-conservative debate last summer. And people were saying, oh, it's intramural, or even what I just said was intra-conservative. And then the more I thought about it, I like, it's, it's not intramural. Like, I'm not authoritarian. Like, I, I believe in the principles of the founding. And if you're coming against small-l liberalism itself, we're not on the same team, no, even if on a given issue, guy, we it, might agree with each other. In the impeachment, right, who was the Jonathan Turley or whatever, who's a uh-huh. Democrat, who the Republicans brought in as their witness— and he was like, "This is there's not enough here for impeachment." And he's a Democrat, but he's a liberal, small a liberal. I mean, he really, you know, like he was moving. I mean, he was he made a great case. Like you don't have to like Trump to agree that Turley's right on this. Like that that on the issues, there might not be enough here for an impeachment. Like yeah, yeah. I mean, and so I think that you know, to to me, the really important battle right now is illiberal and liberal. It's authoritarian and liberal. Um, authoritarian versus Republican, not, not capital R Republican, but, you know, smaller Republican. And so that's the much more urgent battle of our time than what is somebody's given stance on this issue or that issue. Uh, we'll fight about that. We'll have disagreements about that. But if you're illiberal, you're not on my side, even if you agree with me on tax rates, or if you agree with me on, um, you know, any, even, even an issue as important as abortion, I would say, I agree with you on abortion. I agree with you that you should be pro-life, but we're still, there's still a fundamental, huge yawning gulf between illiberal and liberal. Yeah. I had a guy on the show, like, um, a couple months ago, Thane Rosenbaum, who wrote a book, about free speech and its abuses. And he was saying like free speech is not meant to be, Oh, you can just accost anybody in the public square. He said free speech is meant to be around political stuff and other things. And like, 
And he basically said, like, and he's a like left of center guy, but he critiqued. He said, "Look, uh, Colin Kaepernick can be fired. Like, like he now if the if the state of Texas or the federal government said no, football player can kneel, then he'd have a case. But like, free speech doesn't mean you can do whatever the hell you want." And he also said, "You know, on the other side, he said the, the other abuse of it is like universities that." Uh, just ban like conservative speakers or ban Bill Maher because they don't like he's like these are examples of uh, the First Amendment going wrong you know we don't really this is the thing that one of the things that is the most beautiful thing in our country's founding right the First Amendment and I feel like most people don't have any context for they have no idea yeah yeah yeah. I mean we have a huge problem with civic education, which is what, which goes back to our earlier conversation about when voters are approaching politicians and what they want from them. They often want what a, a politician cannot constitutionally give them. But we don't understand free speech. I mean, the First Amendment restrains the government. It doesn't restrain my private employer. So, yeah, the NFL, if it wanted to, legally, it could fire Colin Kaepernick, whereas a, a public university cannot legally impose a speech code on its students, nor could it fire a professor for for not standing for the national anthem if it's a public university. But at the same time, and I think this is something that's really, really important, is to just simply say that somebody can do something is not the same thing as saying, should they? So... One of the negative things that we have seen in our culture is that people are starting to use whatever power that they have and whatever voice that they have, not in an attempt to exercise that, not in an attempt to persuade, but in an attempt to dominate or to exclude. And so, for example, you know, my view is what's the big, I don't agree with kneeling. I'm not going to kneel for the anthem, but what's the big deal on letting an employee do that? You know, I have no problem with him exercising him right, his right in that way. And so where is the tolerance properly understood? Um, does it, am, is it an affront to me if the person in the cubicle next to me is as progressive as I am conservative, is as pro-choice as I am pro-life? Um, no, we can work together. The but we've increasingly started sort of started to f- reach this point where if if I if a person disagrees with me I take that as an affront that makes this working environment hostile or unwelcome. Well, I mean a working environment is unwelcome not based on the fact that somebody disagrees with me but based on the fa- based on the way they treat me, and we're beginning to lose that distinction. I think. Yeah, and how do we gain that back? I mean, do you think we can get it back? I mean, how do you? I mean, th- this is where. What, what did Daniel Patrick Moynihan say? Like that, the truth that conservatives have is that really it's the culture that shapes the country, and the truth that liberals have is sometimes the government can save the country from itself or something. Like, I, I feel like we've lost that sense of how to. Uh, be civic and cultural together. Or, or, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, not everybody, but it's a problem. <laughs> um, part of the part of the problem is we completely, we are increasingly living walled off from each other. And so you have these self-reinforcing cocoons, um, especially if you're somebody who is 
um, especially if you're somebody who's very deeply politically engaged. Um, the odds are that you have a, and this is research is bearing this out, you have a mistaken view of your political opponents. You believe them to be more extremists than they really are. And so our most politically active, most politically engaged people have erroneous views about their political opponents, often live in ideologically uniform communities where those erroneous views are consistently reinforced and where, frankly, being the most aggressive pugilist in the room is rewarded as opposed to, you know, that's where you're going to get the, the accolades. That's where you're going to get the, the, the applause. And so there's an enormous financial incentive. There's an enormous social do you, incentive. Do you ever regret, like, do you ever sit, like, cause I don't think you buy into that. Cause I, like, I know you a little bit. I mean, we're not like good friends or anything. I think, you know, I know you a little bit. Like, mm-hmm. do you regret ever like not being more pugilistic? You're like, gosh, if I was a little more pugilistic, I'd have a bigger, <laughs> I'd have a bigger, I could be like Rush Limbaugh. I could retire earlier. I could, I, I could do this. Like, I mean, and, and, like, and I could, and I'll still shoot the guns. I like to shoot with my friends and I wouldn't like, you know, and I don't see my friends, you know, from New York that often. Like, do you ever regret that? Or do you? No, 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 no. I mean, <sighs> For one thing, the pugilistic right is – what's the right way to put this? So often wrong. <laughs> um, and and a lot of it is so contrary to biblical values that I would just have to I, – and I feel like I would just sort of have to say – Look, everything I believed as a Christian my whole life, I am going to lay that aside because I could maybe get another zero added to the end of my book deal. Um, it's just not. How many zeros my- are we talking right now? <laughs> Classified, but the <laughs> the the. Um, I mean, I you know, look. I think a lot of us reach a point of a a test, and this it is this. We will always think we know who we are until each aspect of what we presume about ourselves is tested. C.S. Lewis said it like this, courage is the form of every virtue at its testing point. Am I truthful? I think most people like to think that they're truthful. You don't know if you're truthful till it's hard to tell the truth. Uh, am I faithful? Most people like to think of themselves in the abstract and say, yeah, I'm absolutely faithful. Well, are you? You won't know until that is put to the test. So there's all kinds of virtues that we think we have, that we construct for ourselves. And then we don't actually know what they are. And this was particularly stark, for example. It's an old movie trope, but there are a lot of elements of truth to it. Of It's particularly stark in wartime, where a lot of soldiers head into the theater of operations convinced that they're very, very brave. And they've constructed for themselves a heroic narrative. And then when the chips are down, some men are brave and some men are not. Um, And so, you know, I think we live our lives and we constantly have sort of this vision of who we are. And then it gets tested. And, And I think what happened for an awful lot of people on the right is if you had said to them before the rise of Trump, are you partisan or are you an independent-minded person? They would have said, I'm absolutely independent-minded. And they would have passed a lie detector test with 
flying colors. But when push came to shove, when it was hard to be independent-minded, what they were was quite partisan and tribal. And, and this is and true that, with Democrats, right? All these polls that say, like, basically, like, for Trump, like, Democrats tended to not like Russia or like Russia more than Republicans. Yeah. Did. And, and, and like the NFL, less than Republicans did. And then Trump comes in and then Republicans like the NFL less and like Russia more and Democrats like the NFL more because of Colin Kaepernick and like Russia less. Like, I mean, this is this weird kind of thing. Like, we're just, I'm just trying to be on the team. It's like middle school. Like, I just want to sit at the cool kid's table. And you can always find a rationalization. Like you can always find a reason, which is different from a justification. Because, I mean, this this goes back and forth co- constantly. So I was in um, law school in 1991 91, when uh, Clarence Thomas was nominated for the Supreme Court. And the Democratic outrage about sexual harassment was off the charts. I mean... You know, the fury and the anger and the rage at Clarence Thomas and that somebody with those kinds of allegations sitting on the Supreme Court, are you kidding? Where's your respect for women? And then here comes, you know, the next part of the story, Bill Clinton, who allegations against Bill Clinton make the allegations against Clarence Thomas look meaningless by comparison, not to say the allegations weren't serious against Clarence Thomas. Nobody accused him of rape. in In the New York Times, like saying, like, basically, like, People, feminists. One free group. Yeah, like basically, like, you know, people that do this are a betrayal of the feminist movement. Oh, I mean, you know, there was there were op eds essentially saying because Clinton was accused of groping a woman outside the Oval Office, and essentially, you know, people said, well, you know, that he stopped, he stopped groping her when she said stop. Um, whereas now that sounds bizarre to our ears to hear, wait a minute, it was okay to grope so long as he stopped. Um, and I would urge anyone who's never looked into the evidence of the Juanita Broderick rape allegation against Bill Clinton to look into that evidence. It's incredibly sobering. And, and so then Republicans built up this narrative about themselves in the Clinton years that you know, look, Republicans aren't perfect, but unlike those hypocritical Democrats, we take sexual misconduct seriously. We take adultery seriously. I mean, look, Newt Gingrich was adulterous and he resigned as Speaker of the House. I mean, you know, whereas Clinton hung on and and we had all these think pieces telling us we need to loosen up our morals about uh, marital fidelity and we Republicans do you think Newt take it seriously from the, for the adulterers that were just like, I mean, I think it was impossible. So there's a couple of things going on. One was um, the house GOP was not performing as well electorally as hoped and expected. And the other one was, how do you be, how do you have an adulterous speaker of the house when you're impeaching a president yeah. who is lying about adultery under oath? Um, and so it just you've seen this flop back and forth and, and a partisan listening right now would say, um, well, but what do you want us to do? Unilateral disarmament? You know, I mean, shouldn't we be able to fight fire with fire? I mean, I, I, sure, I don't want adulterous presidents. I don't want uh, sec- uh, presidents who've been accused of sexual assault with evidence, corroborating evidence of assault, but 
I'm not going to be the one to lay down my arms if they're not going to lay down there. So you always have a reason. But at some point, shouldn't somebody say, you know, I just kind of want to have a, a set of rules and stand, uh, standards for our politicians that is, a, is higher than Bill Clinton and is higher than Donald Trump. Um, and otherwise, we're just... In- Isn't it so sad that that sounds like a big ask right now? That sounds yeah. like a huge ask right Like now. a grandiose ask. And, you know, and, and can, I, can I not ask for that as a citizen of the greatest republic in the history of the world? Can I not ask for that? Is that too much? Is that naive? Uh, apparently, people will say that it is. Do, do you like... So you may have made this argument in public, I mean, all over the place, like on TV and meet the press and HBO and print and that's review online. Like, is it painful? Like you've lost friends who you're on the team with. Like, it's not like you lost a friend that you're on a different team. You've lost friends. I get, I mean, it sounds like you've lost some friends like in the conservative movement, but like you, I mean, I've, I've heard John Podhorowitz on a public, podcast say i don't like david french because he likes liberals i got an email because he like i mean you it sounds like you've lost friends but you haven't deviated from your principles i mean it's not like you changed any of your convictions i mean you're a true i was gonna say true blue but you're a true red i mean you're a radical red (laughs) or whatever whatever we do with the alliteration but like how does that feel like what was who was the first friend or was there like how did it feel the first time when you, I mean, you lost a friend and you knew, like, man, I'm not going to talk to this person anymore. Like, and it's over something we basically we agree on most issues. Well, I, you know, I would say I had an advantage in that my core group of friends was never the Venn diagram between my core group of friends and my colleagues and peers in the conservative movement never really overlapped. So my core group of friends are my friends from college. Uh, my friends from law school, people who have been with me through thick and thin, completely unrelated to politics. Is there a Jewish, lesbian, transsexual in there? Uh, not meeting that specific, yeah. But uh, list. one of two of the, you're talking two of the three. You probably have some friends from law school. <laughs> there two of the three. Like, <laughs> but the the so the so I've always kept my my core circle of friends has always been different from my professional circle of friends. But I will absolutely say that um, beginning in 2015, when I began to vocalize objections to Trump, and especially moving into 2016, when I very clearly said I was never Trump, the the backlash from sort of my how long tribe, was that, by so the way, can speak, I ask you, by the way, like, how, how long was that? Like, the time to, like, I'm against Trump, and I'm a never Trump. Like, I'm, I'm vocalizing, is that like months... Well, uh, oh, it was months, but for several of those months, you didn't realistic, you didn't think he's going to be the nominee. So why would you, I mean, you're, you're looking at in November, December, 2015, and I'm in November, December, 2015, I'm starting to get alarmed and thinking, Hey, I mean, he's really staying up there in the polls. And historically speaking, when you've been in the polls that, that high, that long, a big fade is unlikely. We need to, you know, people need, and I remember writing in December, 2015, that um, Republicans need to stop 
treating him with kid gloves and hit him hard or he's not going to fall. And then you had that sort of false dawn when he lost Iowa. And don't you think everybody was like doing the wrong? I mean, I think the Democrats were almost like lost. This. They were elated. Uh, okay. Like, but I think in this, in this primary, it's the same thing. Like, well, let's not hit the front runner or whatever. Let's hit, I'll knock out Marco and I'll, and Chris, Chris, <laughs> or I'll knock out. Like we don't go at the, at the guy that's King of the Hill. We attack the second or third tier guy so that we can be the second or third tier. And that's just a bit. It's like I've heard you say, we said on the podcast last time, don't divide your forces. Like, yeah. Daenerys. Well, I mean, you, 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 you got to go full on. If you believe it, you got to go full on. People after the first like big swing that Kamala Harris took at Joe Biden in like the very first debate. I mean, a lot of the attacks were at Buttigieg, you know, and. And Biden, you know, regained his mojo and then just sort of swept all before him. But I think that when I became never Trump is when I realized this guy not only is not only is still the front runner, he's likely to get the nomination. So when Um, you become a never Trumper, do you get phone calls or emails or how do people break up with you? Do they do it? (laughs) Do they do it? You have everything from. I mean, so it's sort of a spectrum. So you have your alt-right trolls who do the threats and the online attacks and the... And by the way, for our listeners, you've adopted two black kids, right? Like One. One black kid. So From Ethiopia, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, these, you know, the racist tropes, I mean, this is pretty awful. I mean... Oh, it's horrible. I mean, we don't need to go go all into it, but it was a nightmare for a long time uh, and still is on occasion. But the the um, so you have everything from sort of the most brutal, awful, disgusting attacks from the racist alt right to the on the other end of the spectrum, sort of the high minded think pieces about what's wrong with you and then a whole lot in between. And so, um, you know, and every person does anybody just call you and say, I can't believe you, David French. No, 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 no. Wow. No one does. I no. Because no, you mean I would, introduce an element of human interaction to it? I no. think I would call you. I mean, I, I, like I'm a Democrat, but I'm saying like I think I would call you and just say, "What are you doing?" Like, I mean, like, like no one calls you and says you're excommunicated from the tribe. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no. But you know, I mean, I so you know, my view is I, I as much as humanly possible want to attack ideas and not people. Um, and so I'm not the kind of person who runs around writing, um, op-eds that say, here's what's wrong with this pundit. And here's what's wrong with that pundit. And here's what's wrong with this pundit. There's sort of this score settling and taking names thing that happens a lot. And I, you know, it happens in the left, happens a ton on the right. No, it happens Um, more on the left now. I think now, I think that the, the sands have shifted. I think conservatives want converts. That's what look at Trump. And be like, oh, he's you know a New York liberal, but now he's pushing. Liberals want purity, and if you want the new sort of Levitical, you know, there can't be you know this cloth with this thing. It's on the. I mean, the the puritanism now is on the left. I mean, it it is in on steroids. I mean, we've never seen oh. a kind of puritanism like this. Yeah, I mean, there's you know, I'm sure you're familiar with horseshoe theory. Is that the more extreme each side gets, the more they sort of bend towards each other. And there's a, uh, an extremely intolerant politically correct right, and there's an extremely intolerant politically correct left. 
And that extremely intolerant politically and correct right is sort of like a photo negative of the intolerant politically correct left in this sense. So politically correct right wingery is performatively ferocious and masculine. And and when put to the test, it's performatively masculine that reverts to snowflakery under pressure. Yeah, yeah so, this is Donald Trump. <laughs> and yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like, I'm big, I am tough. You know, I, you're, you know, Twitter, your terms of service don't matter to me. And then, you know, you get tweets deleted and then they're like, Senator Hawley, help me. And, you know, it's this sort of like, I am strong, I am big. Oh no, I've been canceled. And, you know, whereas on the left, it's like performative snowflakery that reverts to ferocity. So you'll, you have this sort of thing like, I can't believe you tweeted that. I am literally shaking right now. Like I'm, I'm literally reading this with tears in my eyes. And then swaggering MAGA pundits says, oh yeah, what are you going to do about it? And then the, Intolerant left, leftist goes from, I'm literally shaking at this tweet to, in full Conan voice, I will crush my enemies. I will see them driven before me and I will hear the lamentation of your women. Like the, just this ferocious attack that comes from the left in response to like this performative weakness and vulnerability. And then you have the right that's like this performative toughness that it is then followed by this incredible weakness and vulnerability. It's like watching people doing soccer flops all day long on, on, uh, you know, on Twitter. And so you have these kinds of mirror image, photo negative political correctness aspects of the two sides, the illiberal aspects of the two sides. And frankly, once you got the whole thing figured out, it's just boring. At some point, it's just boring. And you just have to write it out of your mind and write it out of your your thought processes and just say what you think is true. Because the opposite of political correctness isn't doing the opposite of whatever the politically correct demands you to do. The opposite of political correctness is say what you believe. But you can't write it out because you're a journalist and you're on Bill Maher and you're on Meet the Press. I mean, you have to pay attention to it to some degree, right? Like, because... Uh, you would be surprised. I mean, you're you're still on Twitter, know. right? Like, yeah, you, I'm you sure. check your tweets and you check like. But you is be, is, is be, the thing that you did you engage it differently? Like, it, 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 is it not that whether or not you engage it, but the way you engage it? Yeah. So here's the thing: a lot of this is per, a lot of this is performative taunting, and and trying to make you engage. So you're going to have a group of people who are on Twitter who are constantly pick, 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 picking at you. Just, you know, they're constantly tweeting at you. They're constantly saying stuff about you. And their fondest hope is that you give them a good old fashioned quote retweet where you're trying to, you know, dunk on them or you, you reply or whatever. And the best thing you can do in that circumstance is just leave it alone. Just, you know. I would say 199 days out of 200, I just leave it alone. And then the one day out of 200 when I don't, I regret it. Uh, so that, that kind of thing, which is picking at What was the being, last regret you had where you, where you didn't leave it alone? I can't remember. Oh, during the 
anti-David Frenchism stuff from last summer, I engaged in a really heated series of replies to somebody who accused me of not being sufficiently pro-life. And it was too heated. Who's more and, pro-life than you? <laughs> well, that's why I was heated. But I mean, anyway. I, this is the, I don't know. Like, who's more pro-life than David French? Like, that's... <laughs> But, you know, and the, so so I the personal picking, unless it reaches a point like the First Things article called Against David Frenchism, well, I'm going to respond to that. But the the online Twitter pick, pick, Do you pick, feel pick, a little pick. good, though, like when your name is an ism? Like, I mean, it's kind of like it's got to be hard, but like at some level, hey, I'm, I'm an ism. <laughs> uh, it's a two edged sword. I mean, on the one hand, I was being attacked for being civil and decent and defending classical liberalism. And like, if I can be associated with decency and the American founding, like I'm all about that. But at the same time, it was once again, another one of these rounds of months, months of vicious personal attacks. I mean, just, you know, get this, this guy should be fired harassment at the house. Um, I mean, just crazy, you know, things that went well beyond mean tweeting so that's no fun at all. But so I do think that you can avoid that. The You should ignore those people picking at you. But what you cannot ignore is the spread of bad ideas. You can ignore the personal attacks most of the time. The spread of bad ideas and bad ideas gaining traction, that is what you have to engage on. And, you know, it's it's a judgment call as to, you know, you can't always leave alone everything that's directed at you. It's a judgment call. But what I try to do is counter the spread of ideas that I dislike rather than sort of launch crusades against individuals I dislike. And you seem to be, I think it's interesting. They've done all this these studies, um, like the Jonathan Haidt stuff, where like, you know, the moral psychology where conservatives tend to like to eat at the same places and liberals like to eat at different places and you know, all this, but you seem to be the kind of guy that like you're an ideological conservative and a conservative conservative, but you like, you kind of tend to like bumping shoulders to people that aren't like you. I mean, it's a very interesting. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like it's. Well, I don't, I never have really formed my friendships around politics. Um, never. Um, you know, shared experiences. Yeah. You know, like the, the bond that you have with the guys you serve with in Iraq. I mean, that's a shared experience. The bond you get with that first group of people that you meet at law school, where you're all kind of nervous going into law school. And you're in Harvard law, which is the, I mean, the hard, I mean, this is a a elite, I mean, you've been, Oh, I was intimidated. You've been arguably the two hardest fraternities to get into. Like, I mean, Harvard law and the military. I mean, these are, well, it wasn't hard to get into the military. <laughs> well, I mean, this but is, hard, hard, hard to be in it. I mean, yeah. you've done things that like most Americans just don't do. But, you know, so you have these shared experiences and that bonds you. And that those are bonds that transcend politics. Um, so I've never formed friendships specifically around politics. And I haven't also tended to have my main friends be professional peers and colleagues, um, although we've been friends, just like my core group of friends. And so when you have that core group of awesome friends who are people from the left and from the right of, you know, uh, all kinds of different backgrounds and histories, it's, it's hard to then go into a body politic that says not just my ideas are right and your ideas are wrong, but says, 
my people are better people than your people. And and that's where I think a lot of our, our political discourse is going to rise. It's totally fine to have an argument that says, my ideas are right, and I, here's why I believe they're right, and your ideas are wrong, and here's why I believe that they're wrong. I mean, I'm glad that people have argued that I'm wrong, because sometimes, newsflash, I've been wrong. <laughs> and so I appreciate the chance to to learn new information. But, um, and to be, and to just to learn, period. But when it goes from my tribe are better people than your tribe, that's when mm, we start to go awry. And and it sounds like this is partly like your experience, not so partly just your theology, right? You're a Christian, original sin, like people are just, like a, a GK, the London Times had this essay contest. What's wrong with the world? GK Chesterton wrote, and I am GK Chesterton. <laughs> I mean, right? Is this some of this like not just your experience, but your theology? Oh yeah, I'm a Calvinist. I mean, the T and tulip is total depravity. I mean, you know, we're we're not great. Human beings are not great, and so sort of setting up a a contest of my collection of not great people are better than your collection of not great people. Um, you know, not only one is it apt to be quite wrong. I'm not going to say that, you know, in every circumstance that there aren't material differences between different groups of people. But I'm going to say in the United States of America, in this country, if you're going to say, well, the people on the right are just better people than the people on the left, or the people on the left are just better people than the people on the right. Mm, you know... And and the reason why they're and and they're, it's because of their i their political ideas that really make all the difference. Uh, it's a lot more complicated than that. And and so you know I with when man has fallen, the idea that in this country I'm going to sit there and sort of say not only are my ideas right, but I'm just a better dude, and all the people I hang around with are better dudes. It's just wrong, and it's extraordinarily divisively wrong, and. And I, you know, it's creating a cascading series of, of political and cultural problems in this country. Have has anybody ever come back to you who was like somebody that like was brutal and tough on you because you know you were never Trumper and say, "Hey, I was wrong. Like I, I really overreacted, and I'm sorry." Uh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, people have apologized for individual insults. Um, Sorab Amari, for example, apologized for insulting my military service. Yeah, that um, was rough. I mean, that I, I heard that. Like, that was rough. Yeah, so he apologized for that. Uh, I f- forgave him for it. I mean, it's over. Um, so that's to his credit, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, you know, a number of people sort of apologize for taking this shot or that shot. But, you know, one of the things that we kind of... And but I'm not really looking for that because I think <laughs> one of the things that we're looking, you know, part of our our dysfunction or our politics is we not only want to be proven right, we want our opponents to confess that they're wrong and to sort of like be held accountable for being wrong. And you know, my view is like Look, part of my view on how we accomplish something in together as a country is that I try to persuade somebody to come alongside of me on a particular issue that I care about. And if I'm sort of like, 
you know, counting, collecting scalps along the way, I'm diminishing the incentive of anybody to ever work with me on an issue. That means, oh, David, I have to then confess to you that I was wrong about this thing about Trump and that thing about Trump before. No, I mean, we have to have a huge amount of grace for each other. I remember hearing this story about what Bill Clinton, when he lost the gubernatorial bid or whatever, and he was out shaking hands or hugging people. And somebody says, he doesn't know he's lost. And then somebody said, no, 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 he's running for your election right now. Yeah, <laughs> like, he's like this, you know, and he could cut deals with people that were beaching. I mean, there was a, I mean, Bill Clinton for all his faults and, you know, and they're multi, like, he had this capacity to see that like it, politics is the art of the possible. Oh, and, he's one of the most talented politicians I've ever seen. I mean, there's no question about that. The, but I'll, I'll give you a lesson that I learned early in my legal career. And this is a, a what kind of law a, did you do? So I did commercial litigation early, early, and then I did constitutional litigation, free speech, religious liberty. Um, and you represented the biggest, you were the biggest free speech con- like, group I ran a free country, speech, right? Well, I ran a free speech civil liberties organization called FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education, which still exists and is doing amazing, amazing work. Um, I was the director of the Center for Academic Freedom at the Alliance Defending Freedom, so I sued to overturn college speech codes and things like that. Uh, ran a great talented litigation group. Um, but the, so I had a mentor um, in practice of law, uh, a former Marine JAG officer who was the managing partner of the first law firm I worked at. And he called me into his office after we won a big case. And he says, I want you to listen to this phone call. And we're going to call the client to tell the client that he'd won. He'd won mm. his case. Mm. And so we call the client and uh, the partner says, I have good news for you. you we, your motion for summary judgment was granted. Oh, what did the judge say? So he went through, you know, and by the end of the call, the client was actually angry. The judge had not condemned the other side uh, with sufficient um, vitriol. Uh, he had not gotten everything that he asked for. He'd just gotten most of what he asked for. And after the phone call was over, uh, the managing partner hung up and I said, that was incredible. I said, we did a great job. We won this case. We got more than you could reasonably ask for, for it's our never enough. And, and he said, I'll tell you this. He said two things I've never forgotten. He goes, number one, David, the practice of law would be amazing if it weren't for clients. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and, then, and then the other thing he said is, you have to understand when a person goes into court, they're not just looking, rare is the client who's looking just for vindication on the law. They're looking for a declaration of almost divine justice. Not that you're right in this contract dispute, but you're right. The other side is wrong. The other side is evil. And the other side must be published, uh, punished. And they, they're asking in court what the law can't deliver. And, and I've never forgotten that. And that has been consistently, not universally true, because I've had clients who've been very, very, very appreciative. But it is consistently true that you have to teach clients that they often come into court wanting what the law can't deliver. And the same thing often happens in politics is that people come into politics or into punditry or into you name it, wanting what the profession cannot deliver, an ultimate sense of purpose, 
uh, a a sense of complete justice, um, a total vanquishing of your enemies. All of those things that you sort of are crying, that the fleshly part of you is crying out for, you can't get it. You can't get it. And the effort to try to get it can destroy you. And it can, it can turn you hard and cold and cruel. And so, you know, I fear that that's one of the things that you, you look, you see in politics. And so, you know, look, if somebody disagrees with me tomorrow on huge important issues, A, B, C, D, and E, and they're going to come in and they agree with me on important issue F, I want to give them a hug and say, let's get to work on F. And maybe over drinks later tonight, we'll talk about A through E, but let's bond over F. And throughout my whole life, that's what I have discovered in the fight for civil liberties. So one thing you do in the fight for civil liberties is you defend the rights of others that you would like to exercise yourself. So you're constantly defending people you disagree with. And when you extend yourself for somebody that they know and you know, we disagree with each other, but I'm extending myself for you to vindicate your liberty. You create a bond there. You create a sense of fellowship there that you would never have in any normal circumstance. And that has taught me a valuable lesson literally from the beginning of my legal career. So politically, I mean, this is a weird time, right? We're all sequestered. Who knows how long? Like, I mean, are you guys in... in We're in a shelter in place with a lot of exceptions. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's just crazy. What, like... What do you see ahead politically? I mean, who know, like, I mean, I, what, one of the things I think is interesting is like people are commenting today, like, oh, how long did it take Obama to endorse Biden? But like, he didn't endorse Hillary Clinton until June, like June of, you know, 2016. Yeah. I mean, these are like, this is an interesting, and you got this, I can't remember, and I'm a Democrat, I can't remember a weaker, standard bearer than joe biden i mean it, it uh you, it, you don't it, remember it, hillary clinton <laughs> well okay okay fair okay fair fair but she the con okay her negatives were huge right but competency i mean i think hillary clinton had she become president would have been competent and capable uh a lot of policy things i probably wouldn't have agreed with like uh especially because i think she would have been uh more hawkish than we could ever like i mean there's there's you know the the three of the three double down triple down like i think she'd have been uh she's too on on the military industrial complex she would have been all she's a uh, hawk down deep in her soul i think yeah she's a big believer in american power yeah and, and and in a way that i think is is probably um was probably not sufficiently self-critical <laughs> it's interesting for somebody who came of age during the Vietnam War and joined the left during the Vietnam War, but her public life since has been. But that we're digressing. So anyway, no, you had so a question. We, so this is we have this like historically weak. I mean, standard bearer, but who polls well in Pennsylvania and Michigan, not in Wisconsin, right? And right, you know, I, I've polls seen well in Arizona, <laughs> right? Yeah, and I've seen some projections that Trump could lose by five million votes. And and if he holds Wisconsin, he wins. And I, and it, it looks like he could hold Wisconsin. I mean, like that, like Wisconsin looks like it's a pretty good lock. Well, let me put it this way: if he loses by five million, he's not winning Arizona. Um, and if you lose Arizona, and, and 
and um, Biden keeps Michigan and Pennsylvania, it's game over. So for, for Trump, I mean, I think that at some point the math, so the question is, if Trump loses popular vote by 5 million, where are those 5 million coming from? And the one thing that you're seeing with the Democrat coalition since, Democratic coalition since 2018, is they're getting the suburbs. You get the suburbs and you get the cities, you win, period, period. And you might win by a little bit less in some of these battle, battleground states, and then you might win some battleground states that you haven't won before in recent years because you're getting the suburbs. And so um, the Electoral College matters a ton, obviously. I mean, what, you know, Trump lost the popular vote by more than 2 million and still was president, obviously. But at some point, the math just stops working because he he won those the three states he really needed by 77,000 votes. And you start to adjust the suburbs and the suburbs in America are, there's a lot of common culture there from state to state to state. And you start to tune the suburbs more Democrat. Republicans and, aren't and winning. Democrats are winning in like places like Northern Virginia that were gerrymandered around the, you know, like, hey, Republicans, well, the Republicans are going to win the Super- I mean, Delaware County in Pennsylvania, which hadn't gone Democrat since the Civil War. <laughs> well, you can look at everything from Democratic. I mean, now, now Democrats are not winning Kentucky and Louisiana, but there are sure, Democratic sure. governors in Kentucky and Ohio. And Louisiana. But not Democrats are going to win Ohio either. I mean, but you can look at, you know, th- there are Democratic governors in Kentucky and Louisiana. How did you get Democratic governors in Kentucky and Louisiana? A big part of it was a suburb. So, I mean, you know, there. We'll do you think see. that's science or rhetoric? I mean, do you think, like, I always think, like, the kind of climate change and stuff and Democrats can run as we're the party of science or something. And whether that's true, like, but rhetorically, what what rhetorically has swung those Republican, those suburban things, do you think, away from... Well, I mean, so that's a really good question. I don't think we have a specific answer, but here's my best guess. Trump, Trump, his real energy is with people who are very angry about our system. That's his core base. The people who believe that America was once great, it's not great anymore. People, um, working class Americans, white Americans who feel left behind by global economy, feel a great deal of economic insecurity. That's a lot of his core base. Now, I can hear your political scientist listeners going, it wasn't about economic insecurity, but I'm talking about parts, like if you're talking about like a lot of the real Trump energy is around the drain the swamp, attack the establishment, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, this is why people couldn't believe when you, you ask people, how could somebody go from Bernie to Trump? That's really people easy did. to explain. <laughs> yeah, people did. Yeah, because people are just like, screw it. I just feel like I'm being left behind. And- but if you, so you have, you know, attack the establishment. The America isn't working. Now, what population of voters would you say that America works for pretty well? Suburbs. Yeah. I mean, yeah. suburbs. I mean, suburbs are, not, I, I live in a suburb now. I used to be in much more rural America. It's pretty nice. It's pretty nice. And, and, you know, people have jobs, people have homes, they have yards, they have, their kids are going to good schools. There is a high degree of value in stability. 
There's a high degree of value in no drama. There's a high degree of much more of a sense of don't screw this up. Whereas, and so the Trump sort of bull in a China shop thing is a little bit alarming to people. It's more alarming. It's not exciting. It's not invigorating. It is alarming. Yeah, I, and I, I was shocked that Hillary Clinton right, won one-sixth of the counties in the country. Trump won five-sixths of the counties, right? But the one-sixth she won has like 67% or had in 2016, 67% of the GDP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think... Our, I, I think like how does it, we not have, how do we not have a civil war like I mean if if five six of the counties are only getting thirty percent of the GDP like like how are people just not like I mean well yeah I mean I hear what you're saying and it's it's a source of instability uh, over the long term it really is it's a source of instability over the long term um, but the bottom line is our cities drive our GDP. They just do. And and it's one of the reasons why a lot of this talk about with coronavirus, we're going to turn America back on. Well, our cities are the most vulnerable to the spread of these infectious diseases, as, as witnessed by New York City, for example, which is our number one GDP engine of any city in the United States by far. Um, so long as members, citizens in American cities feel really vulnerable to coronavirus, we're not turning the economy back on, like flipping a light switch back on. But that's a whole nother conversation. But yeah, I mean, you have a large number of people who are who produce a disproportionately small amount of our GDP who feel as if a lot of the country is slipping away from them. Sometimes for good reasons, factories have closed. Uh, there are towns that are in decay, sometimes for bad reasons. Some of these people are racist. <laughs> you know, uh, white Southern populism has always had a racial element. Always. Um, and so so sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for bad reasons, people are feeling like something is slipping away and they're trying to grab hold of it. That And, and Trump, Trump is their avatar. Um, but at the same time, if your avatar is too much like a bull in a china shop, there's millions and millions and millions of Americans for whom Trump for for whom America works pretty well. It works pretty well. And they're much less focused on blowing things up. And they're much less interested in erratic tweeting. And they didn't feel like America was going to heck, you know, under you know, was going to hell under Obama. They just didn't like his policies. Didn't necessarily feel like the whole country is going to hell. And and then there are people who think that Trump is his instability is itself a threat. And so that's one of the reasons in my, you know, we'll be fighting about the suburban issue for 20 years. But in my view, that's that's part of the reason. So so, so it's not necessarily one issue. It's, it's kind of a tonal thing. It's not it, it, it's 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 not about pro-life, pro-choice or climate change or science. It's about like tonally like this guy seems disruptive and like. Right now, we don't need disruption. Like, hey, you know, my 401k is going up and, you know, my house isn't on fire. And, you know, I'm, you know, like my kid's school is pretty decent. And I, you know, like, I mean, the, the, basically. It, well, and they also want to be proud of their president. They want their kids to be proud of their president. I mean, they want their president to be a good person. They have, you know, it's a lot of it just is kind of pretty basic and primal. Like, I want to be proud of my leader. You know, my our national, you know, our head of state. Or I want to be, 
I want to be able to trust what he says. And and if you're not a very committed, especially if you're kind of, you might be not necessarily a full-on social conservative like me, but you're, so life isn't going to be your number one issue. Well, if life isn't your number one issue and you see a lot of erratic behavior, you're much less persuaded by the message that's given to Christian conservatives like me, like that you got to swallow all this stuff from Trump because of life. Because we're going to get the judges. Because we're going to get the judges. But tons and tons and tons of suburban voters are not, they're not that zealous on any social issue. Um, and so that, that argument just isn't going to win the day. And I think it's one of the reasons why there's not a single Republican representing Orange County anymore, which is shocking. I mean, Orange County, which is very suburban and prosperous, used to be a Republican stronghold. So, yeah, I mean, what do you do? You think you'll eat the the Republicans can get them back, or like, I mean, do you? Th- I mean, do you think this is like a just an election cycle long kind of thing, or is this a is this a sort of because people cried. I mean, when Obama won, people said it's the end of the GOP, right? And like, and then, you know, like two years later. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's an open, they may be able to get him back in 2020 if Biden can't seal the deal. Um, you know, look at it this way. If, tr- if Trump can, if we can flatten the curve on coronavirus without, uh, I'm looking at the numbers just since we've been talking, I believe reports of about 700 more deaths have come in. This is you, horrible. How, how often do you check those numbers? Uh, specific times, because I know when different states report. Um, but the, so 700 more deaths. Do you tell your guild, like, hey, I'm, I have to pause because I have to check the current no. things. I'm just, no. <laughs> just no. Kill, like, the that's guild. a late so the, night. So that's you're not in the middle night. of a raid, right? Like, okay, no, that's I, a late hey, night raid. My, my, my priest, uh, my, my evil priest has to like take a time, time out because I have to check the corona numbers. No, 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 no. But um, so if you can flatten the curve and we're not losing 2,200 or more people a day and the economy starts to turn around, people might look at it and say, you know, for all of the problems in February and March, he, he got this awful thing under control and I'm going to give him credit for that. That's entirely possible. And so, you know, the Republican, it's. It's not like one midterm election means the suburbs are gone, but one midterm election can mean alarm bells are blaring, the the, the suburbs are in danger. And so we'll see is what happens in 2020. The fact, the fact that like the midterm turnout was so high, like is that... I'm not wor- Considering I'm neither a Republican nor a Democrat, I'm not worried by anybody's turnout. But you're an independent. Okay, you're an independent. <laughs> but I'm just saying, if you're like thinking as a Republican strategist, like... Those turnout numbers were really high. I mean, like, and sure. and it's probably not going to go lower unless we, <laughs> unless Trump says, all right, we're confining everybody for. I'll okay. tell you. <laughs> like, I, well, that's I'll what Trump will do. He'll, he'll say, all right, we're confining everybody. Stay at home unless you get to. Now, what could, I, what, what could send turnout lower isn't, I mean, if. It's not so much a stay-at-home order. It's do people feel afraid to go to the polls? Like, that's why vote my ba- vote my mail is going to be a really important aspect of this. And, you know, because the fact of the matter is our economy was in free fall before these shutdown orders. Why? Because people were not going, were thinking, do I want to eat out tonight and risk 
this mysterious, awful, infectious disease that's killing people at 30 times the rate of the flu? Or will I just open up the box of minute rice and people will open up the box of minute rice? And and so if the if the pandemic is still raging in November 1, that's going to be really, really bad for Trump, which is far secondary to how really, really, really awful it will be for all these for Americans, both their lives, their, you know, the, the awful experience of the disease itself, even for those who recover and the economy. I mean, who, you know, Trump's political fortunes will be low on the priority list at that point. But if it's still raging in November, I really worry about turnout. Yeah, I'll tell you the, I mean, the thing I think about, like, about the nature of the country and, and its health is like, yeah, the scientists, and I feel like Fochi and all these, I think these guys, they're pretty, like, honest and, like, you know, they're doing the best they can with the models. But at some point, do people feel so disempowered that they don't trust things anymore? Like, I mean, I, I feel like we need, again, to have this kind of conversation about how we figure this out. And I don't know how we do. I don't know how we weigh costs over against. It's the Malcolm Gladwell Canadian healthcare question. Like, how do we say like what are acceptable risks and who can we, you know, and, and we need vaccines and testing and, you know, like Zeke Emanuel, you know, Rahm Emanuel's brothers, you know, esteemed public health guy said 18 months, like is what it'll take to get probably, and that's probably realistic to get a vaccine and testing, but like, you know, we're going to crater the economy for 18 months. Like, who knows? Like, I feel like we don't have a mechanism to talk about this in a way that Americans need to own it together. Like, so, so, so we can all say like, Hey, yeah. These are the risks we're going to take, uh, and we don't want any more deaths, but also we can't, you know. Well, I'll say this, and then I've got, I've got to jump, because you, you just raised a hugely important question, a hugely important issue. I think, ultimately, government policy is going to be less important than human, in, than the grassroots up, behavioral response to the American people. And that is going to be heavily influenced by what actually happens with the disease between now and the next four, five, six, seven, eight weeks. Because if you look at some of the nations that have done a better job than others in responding to this virus, like South Korea, like um, Taiwan, uh, I know it's not a nation, but it has it's a degree of autonomy, Hong Kong. The ones that did better had a common experience of a shock to the system through SARS. And so they, they had been through the threat of a deadly pandemic before. And so there was a much greater willingness of the population even to engage in voluntary behavior, like to, to lock into a different mode of living, putting on the mask, being distant from people, canceling large events. That gave them a high degree of sort of resist, they, they had a, a cultural resistance to the spread based on hard-earned experience. If the hard-earned experience in this country is that this virus is super deadly and claiming lives is at an unacceptable rate, public policy, you could, you could, you could be a governor and lift all the restrictions tomorrow and say, game back on. Are people going to run and get on planes? Are people going to go to movie theaters? Some will, some. And then if numbers peak, po poke back up again, are people going to keep going? So 
a lot of what's going to happen to us is going to be dictated by can we get the virus under control? If we can get the virus under control, we can't, we have to stop thinking in this binary that says it's either the economy or it's control the virus. It's not either or. It's control the virus or we don't have an economy. I mean, this infectious disease. And that's interesting because so- you're a guy that like is a civil libertarian par excellence. I mean, you. I mean, you have all the marks. I mean, you know, if you were the Bible, your leather would be genuine. I mean, <laughs> the, 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 this is. It's that's interesting because you're kind of a. Hey, we got to control the virus. I mean, we got. I mean, I don't. I don't. You know, I think that you could again. You could lift everything tomorrow, and you might slow the decline of the economy. A bit, but you would then extend the reach of the virus, which would then extend the economic slowdown. But make no mistake, what I'm saying isn't that that means we have to lock down for in, an indefinite period. I'm not saying that at all. I think what we should ease lockdowns as soon as practical uh, in give, based on local conditions. That's federalism at work. What right, I'm saying there are places is, like there are places that are just super low risk and there are places like New York will be high risk for a long time. Like, yeah. But what I'm saying is the, we are making a false, we keep presenting the public with this idea, idea that we have a choice between the economy and lives. So in other words, we can loosen up and be willing to tolerate more deaths in exchange. We get our economy back or we can save lives, and the problem with that is we lose our economy. What I'm saying is you could loosen up and get more deaths, and the consequence of getting more deaths will be you'll still have a bad economy because human beings will not operate in the same way in a risk environment like that. And, and that's one thing that you've seen from some of these other nations that have had a little bit different policies is people won't go out to restaurants, people won't congregate in large numbers because they have a perception of risk, and and so my 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 view is you just don't present to the people this idea that it's either more death but more economy, or less death and less economy. If you get more death, you're going to have less economy, no matter what any governor says. Yeah, I mean that kind of voice of. Wisdom. Why? Why aren't more people saying this kind of stuff? Um, I'll, you know, there are people. Uh, you know, this is hardly original to me. There's people a lot smarter than me saying it, which is one of the reasons why I'm saying it is because people a lot smarter than me are. Yeah, saying but you it. watch Fox News or MSNBC, you're seeing it. You, you want? You know, you're not. This is not um, what you hear. Maybe that's just because you know, John Stewart always says like the media is biased to laziness and sensationalism. I mean, is that the problem? I mean, like you, like why aren't we hearing more rational, calming things from the media saying, okay, we can do this. It's it'll be you know we'll get back on the horse and it'll be you know people are going to be risk averse. It's going to be slow. I mean, why? And now people that are on shows say it, but like I don't know why that's not. Yeah, it, 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 I mean, it sounds true. I mean, I think it's true, right? Like, well, we yeah. I mean, we like to present things. We like to feel like we have control, and that we are sort of saying, "Okay, here is my choice. 
What are our competing? We like to feel like there is a degree of control that we have here. And and then when you put up a binary, it's perfect for a a it's perfect for a a, a cable news setup where you've got the person who's for more restrictions and the person who's for less restrictions and the person who's saying, how dare you devalue life for the sake of the stock market? And the person on the other person's side says, how dare you underestimate the human toll of economic decline? And you get this back and forth. And we like to feel like we have that level of control. And what I would submit and what I would argue is when a pandemic is on the loose, we don't have the level of control that we think that we have. Yeah. Late modern life is always predicated on control. And like, you know, we don't have any for anything. Yeah. And to the extent that we have control, um, you know, a lot of that, the word control is even overused. The control really depends on compliance. It's not like we have martial law here. I mean, I, I could get out of my house right now and violate social distancing rules and nobody, somebody might look at me crossly, but it's not like, you know, there's a national guardsman outside. Uh, we have rules in place that are defending on, depending intensely on voluntary compliance, intensely. And what does voluntary compliance depend on? It depends on information and experience. And so the information and experience, if it continues to be that this virus is as deadly as it's proving to be, like I said, you could open up everything. And sure, there might be some rural counties that spark more to life, but our economy won't. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, and this, we're in it together, I think. And this is part of, I think, what you were saying like about the human family. Like we're in it together. And maybe the the severe mercy of all this is that we for all the suffering and all the struggle and all the angst and storm and dramas that like we, we come to see each other more is, is, you know, in the image of God, like we're, we're all in this together, whatever tribe yeah. you're in. Amen to that. David, you're a great guest. Uh, as always, you, you do not disappoint. And uh, <laughs> we, now that we've solved all the problems of the world, uh, you know, thank you for talking with me for a while about life and, I don't know if we've solved them. I think we've determined that a lot of them are kind of out of our hands. <laughs> yeah. And I would be, if I could get in your guild, if you could text me your guild, I'm not that good though. Like, but I'll be like the bird, like I'd be like, you could bring me along. I mean, we have standards. You'll have, you'd have to prove yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of give and take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.